we've been going through a section now in Mark that has lined up story after story to highlight the power, the authority of Jesus. It is on display as he demonstrates to us, as Mark continues to answer the questions, who is Jesus? Why has he come? What does it mean to follow him? And we see in Jesus his power and authority in demonstrating why he has come. He's come to bring the kingdom, to offer the kingdom. And it is kingdom that is marked by power and authority and dominion. And so we've seen it now. He speaks and he calms the storm. He has power, dominion, authority over nature. And in that, we can defer for ourselves. He has power and authority and control, even in the storms of our own lives. From there, we move. We see that he has authority over the realms of darkness, over Satan and his dominion. That Jesus indeed rules over them as, as he encounters the demoniac. And really, in there, we see that, that, that Jesus indeed has invaded this age. The kingdom has invaded this age and it will not be stopped. Light will overcome darkness. And now we'll see two more stories that Jesus has power and authority over disease. As we approach and see the story of the woman with the hemorrhage and how God heals her. And really the kingdom instruction from there is we see that God is redeeming and renewing a creation that has been turned upside down by the fall that he's reversing the curse, that he is making all things new. And we see this demonstrated as he heals this lady. And finally, Jairus' daughter, where we'll close today. Jesus has dominion and authority over the final enemy, over death itself. The promise of the kingdom is just that, that he has authority and dominion over death. I want to remind us, I've done it the last several weeks, but as we encounter Jesus, we must remember with Mark, it's not just that we see something about Jesus and this happens in a vacuum. When we encounter Jesus, a response is demanded. And we see this, Mark shows us these pictures. How are people going to respond when the kingdom, when the kingdom is offered, when Jesus comes and demonstrates the power and the authority and the grace of the kingdom, if it's claim and it's call on your life. And so we've seen all kinds of reactions and responses to that. Unbelief, defensiveness. They don't want God, they don't want Jesus to intrude upon their religion, on their way of life outright anger. Jesus is challenging what they love, what they are holding on to. But we also see moments of faith where people see and they come and they sit at Jesus' feet and they follow him and fear is turned to faith. And disciples are made as he says, come, sit at my feet. And then he gives them the message and he says, go with this message of the kingdom. Our text today is going to kind of layer two stories together. We've seen Mark do this already a couple of times, and he'll do it again, where I think we use the illustration, it's almost like a split screen, if you would, where he introduces a story, he interrupts it and tells another story, and then he comes back and finishes his first one, as if you're kind of watching two things, and he layers them together for us, because together they teach us something that we may not we may not see, we may not understand if they were separated uh, by any distance. And so he places them together. So we're meant to see these stories overlapping and how they work 
together. And once again, it is Jesus stepping into a hopeless situation. Again, we saw it on the storm. We saw it with the demoniac. We now see it with this, with this lady. We see the Jairus' daughter. A, a situation that feels completely hopeless. And Jesus steps in and provides rescue. <clears throat> Mark, as much as anywhere, I feel as you're reading it, you almost can immediately put yourself in the context of what's taking place. Yes, there's some, you know, things that belong to that age, but you can immediately put yourself in the situation that as you see how Jesus acts and as you see how Jesus speaks, that it immediately should resonate with your own life, how Jesus works and speaks in your life. As you see the reactions of either faith or disbelief, that you could immediately put yourself in the audience Say, how am I responding to the call of Jesus? And this text is no different at all. There's a couple ways I think we immediately can put ourselves into it. First, the world of Mark 5, especially starting here in verse 21, going to the end of the chapter, is a world you're very familiar with. It's a world of suffering, sorrow, and disappointment. It's a world where you planned things and they didn't go as you planned. It's a world that is marked by death, that is marked by separation, that is marked by confusion. Now, thankfully, the Lord is incredibly gracious to us. And as we saw in the last uh, text, all of us should be rehearsing how much he has done for us and his mercy to us. And yet the reality is the age that we live in is marked by the fall. And thus it is marked by difficulty. It's marked by hard things. That's the world of Mark 5. That's the world that we live in. You have a father facing the death of his little girl. It, is there anything harder or worse in this age passing away than the death of a child? That's not supposed to happen. That goes against nature. That goes against everything. It's devastating, and yet the father is in complete desperation as his daughter is on death's doorstep. You have a lady with a chronic illness that she's been fighting for years and years, and it's turned her complete life upside down. This is the world we live in. This is the world that Jesus steps into here. I think the other part that we can so quickly relate to is the, the battle to keep faith and have hope in the midst of these circumstances. You see it here with this lady, you see it with Jairus, of just the battle to have faith. These stories aren't meant to necessarily put anyone down or exalt them. It's just the reality of the pendulum that our life swings on of being real bold and full of faith one moment and not much has to happen before we are very cowardice and hopeless. And just the, the kernel of faith that sometimes exists where it feels like others are abounding in it. 
we're going to see that here with this lady. We're going to see with Jairus that the pendulum swings between human despair and divine promise, between brokenness and healing, and wholeness, redemption. And we must learn as the kingdom is presented that it points us to the reality of ultimate and final victory that is absolutely real and true and ours. And that is invading this age that is passing away. And yet at the same time, in our humanness, experiencing the falling, the suffering of this age and trusting in Jesus through it. The two stories today, there's a lot of overlaps in them. Again, you have Jairus who's pleading for the life of his little 12-year-old girl, his 12-year-old daughter, a lady who, again, kind of the 12 years we see pop up again, has been afflicted with a, a hemorrhage, a flow of blood for 12 years. As God goes through both of them, Jesus is going to touch, and he's going to call them daughter, and he's going to bring healing into their life. Both of these people come to Christ in complete desperation. So let's just introduce them and then we'll walk through the text simply. Jairus, he's a ruler in the synagogue. That uh, means he didn't belong to the religious order. He wasn't a rabbi per se, but as a ruler in the synagogue, he would be kind of like the, the COO, the chief operating officer. He oversaw the building, the facility, he oversaw the things, that, the events that took place, made sure that the services were ready. One of his primary roles would have been to make sure that the scrolls were ready and were safe and could be used. And so because of that, he would have been a man of some reputation and prestige in the area. He would have had a measure of wealth and influence. Also, he would have been no fan of Jesus. We've already seen the scribes and Herodians, they, they are working together to figure out how to destroy Jesus. In this synagogue here in Capernaum, Jesus has already had some run-ins with people. There's, there's already been some difficulty. Jairus would not have naturally been a fan of Jesus, and it would have served him to keep a good distance from Jesus. And yet here we find him, crowds pressing in, masses of people pressing in around Jesus, wanting to see him, hear from him. And Jairus, this man, fights through the crowd, gets Jesus' attention, and just drops to his knees and begs Jesus. I don't know what kind of faith Jairus had at this moment, but it was complete desperation, and he had nowhere to turn except to Jesus. And in humility, he falls at his knees. Again, this is not something he would have naturally done. He falls at his knees and he begs and he pleads for Jesus to come with him and to heal his daughter. The language used there is, is not that she's sick, but she is literally moments from dying. She's on death's door. Jesus agrees, I'll go with you. And then interrupts, interlude here, is another story of this woman with the hemorrhage. Her 12 years could have not been more different probably than this little girl. Grew up in a nice house, well, things going well for her until this moment of sickness. For this lady, these 12 years has ruined her life. 
to have this sort of issue and this hemorrhage and this blood flow that she has, she would have been marked as unclean. We, we've talked about that with the leper in the past. Her existence would have been much, wouldn't have been much different than the leper. So it's not only the physical ailments and the struggle that she would have faced that way, but the complete social ostracization to put outside of the community, the loneliness, the devastation outside of the worshiping community, off to herself, proclaimed unclean. It says in here that she sought doctors out. Doctor after doctor, remedy after remedy. And it's just gotten worse. Her condition is worse. She spent all of her money trying to get better. And now she is broke. She's in a devastated situation. She can't be around people. See, they probably kept her from being married or ended her marriage. And here we find herself. She approaches Jesus a little differently. She does it secretively. It's against the law for her to even be in this crowd, to touch any of these people. So she sneaks in, and again, we know she has a kernel of faith. Jesus tells us that. But she sneaks in. She catches just a a glance, a, a little touch of Jesus. And immediately, she's healed. And she knows it. It's this act of faith that takes place before she's fully aware of what took place. Most uh, probably what's taking place here, commentators talk about, is it was superstition. The, The idea of a man of power, a man of some prestige, that even to be in the same area of them could bring some good luck into your life. To get a touch of them would would really bring you some good luck. Almost as you think of like some uh, relic, Christian relic that people might think, oh, if I can just hold this while I pray, it's going to give me some good luck. And so this lady's faith that Jesus is going to talk about in a moment is highly uninformed and is mostly superstition. And it's that very reason that Jesus stops the whole crowd and calls this woman out. At first you wonder, why would he do that? Is, is he, I mean, she could get in trouble. Is he going to embarrass her by calling her out? I feel like an old fire and brimstone preacher wiping the sweat off my brow. I'm going to let you have it in just a minute. But Jesus does so because he wants to correct her uninformed faith. He wants to teach her a lesson. He wants to teach Jairus a lesson. And he wants to teach everybody a lesson. And so he asks in the moment, who was it that touched me? And the disciple's response is really funny. If, if you were, it's basically like, are you kidding me, Jesus? <laughs> There's probably been like 200 people that have touched you in the last few minutes. Everyone's pressed up on us here. There's no room to even turn around. You want to know who brushed up against you? But Jesus won't drop it. He wants to know who touched me. And so the woman, she knows what's happened to her. She's filled with fear. And she comes forward. And it says she told him the whole truth, the whole story of what took place. And Jesus corrects her superstition and her uninformed faith. In verse 34, if you read it there, he says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now I want to pause here for a moment because there is some terrible theology that grows out of this verse. 
that numerous pulpits proclaim, and this idea of your faith has made you well. You realize when he's saying this that faith is the instrument by which God used and worked in her life. It's not the effective or efficient means. It's not that it was the quality or the quantity of her faith that healed her. This is not opening some door to, if you believe it enough, it's yours. If you just, you know, really believe God will heal you, then you will be healed. If you just really, really believe that you deserve a new car, you're going to get a new car. As if somehow faith becomes the efficient means, that you just need to believe it and it's yours. You just need to work hard and have more faith. I think the exact opposite is being taught here. This woman's faith is completely uninformed. She's not some theologian. She doesn't have good understanding what's going on. If anything, it's 95% superstition. She thinks it's like some sort of magic that's taking place here. And yet there is just a, a mustard seed of faith. Just that small kernel of faith. And when Jesus says that your faith has made you well, he's pointing us, us to, because the object of your faith, you came to Jesus. However uninformed, however superstitious, you came to Jesus. And he's correcting her faith in that moment. And the point is that Jesus has the power. Jesus has the authority. The object of the faith, he's the only one that can make you well. Pastor Adam made a similar point looking at Abraham a, a, a month or so ago. That, that it's not the quality, the quantity of faith. It's weak faith like we have that sometimes grows and sometimes shrinks. But it's the object of our faith. If it's resting in Jesus, that he will inform it. He will teach it. He will make it fruitful. He will work in it. That's why when you look at Jesus' sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and you think, who is the blessed one? Who's the one in Christ? Is it the one who has great faith? The one? No. It's the poor in spirit. It's the brokenhearted. It's the one like Jairus. It's the one like this woman who, in desperation, with complete empty hands, comes to Christ and says, I have nothing. I need you to help me. That's the sort of faith that Christ is looking for. It is faith that's not coming and offering, but with empty hands coming to receive from Jesus. So reject the idea that the quality, the quantity of your faith somehow earns God to work for you. That's not what is being taught here. The opposite is that from this kernel of faith, because Jesus is the object of that faith, this woman is made well after suffering for 12 years. Well, I can just imagine what Jairus now, remember him? Remember he fell on his knees begging, Jesus, you need to come with me right now. The next thing he knows, Jesus is looking around trying to find out who touched him. He's got to be like, are you kidding me? Come on, I, I told you my daughter is near death. We need to go. Jesus, no, 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 I've I, I got to find this out. Who touched me? And even the way Mark tells the story, he's wanting us to ask this question. When it says, the woman said, well, it was me. And she tells him her whole truth, her whole story. When we moved, we moved from the, our old building on Penn Avenue here last November. So we had to cancel our Verizon internet there. So I canceled it, but then like a month later, we still got billed. 
And I thought, I do not want to call Verizon and work through this. So I just like forgot about it. Well, the next month we got billed again. So finally I was like, okay, I got a call. And you know how that goes when you call an internet or a cable company, like you were just in it to win it at that point. So I call and you're talking to some, not a real person, a real voice, not a real person. And it's like, please listen to the 42 options. None of them are what you need. So at the end, stay on the line for a real, to talk to someone. So I'm a half hour into this phone call. They asked me to put in my phone number that is associated with this account. So I put in my phone number. They say, this is not a Verizon phone number. Thank you. So now, I mean, I'm fuming. Well, not fuming, but I'm mad. And I'm starting over again, so I do the whole thing again. This time, they asked for my account number. So like, okay, this will be good. I put in my account number. Apparently, once you cancel, that account number like vanishes, never to be found again. So they're like, sorry, this account no longer exists. Eh. I'm telling you, this went on for days. Anna can attest to it. I, I came home and just talked about nothing else except Verizon. Finally, whatever, after like three days of this, we got our $200 back and life goes on. But just that, like, are you kidding me? Come on, answer the phone. I'm getting so irritated and agitated. Just to give you an idea, that nothing compared to this man wanting Jesus to come with him to save his daughter. There's minutes left to save her life. And Mark's telling us the story so that we see he delayed. He's helping this lady. He's listening to her whole story. He's taking time to teach, to, inst- to instruct. And Jairus must have been going crazy. But then Jesus pronounces at the end, your faith has made you well. Gives her a benediction for the rest of her life. Go in peace. Jairus' faith, you would think, would swell at that moment. Okay, I've heard of his healings. He was my last hope. Now I've seen him do this. Look, verse 35. And while he was still speaking, that is Jesus, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Again, crashing down that faith, that hope hope that was starting to build. I think we're meant at this moment to ask the question. Mark tells the story in such a way that the reader would ask, could Jesus have saved this girl if he would have just had a little more urgency? Did he wait too long? Did he just not care about it like Jairus did? Was he just not taking it seriously? Could Jesus have done something and he didn't do it? There's a couple of responses that kind of show us this is what the people are thinking right after that when they tell him that his daughter is dead. The next, why trouble the teacher any further? It's like a sarcastic response. Like, obviously he can't do anything. He's not helping you. Leave him alone. The servants are like, it it was hopeless going after him. Why bother him anymore? We'll see Jesus respond But we see even once he gets to the house and there's the mourners there. And Jesus says, what are you mourning for? She's not dead, she's just sleeping. They also don't believe it because their mourning goes from mourning to immediately laughing and mocking Jesus. The mourners here are likely, it's a 
cultural thing, not family or friends, but hired professional mourners. Like they would come and they would wail and cry and make a scene. And so that was in that, the custom of that time. And the, the wealthier you were, the more mourners you would have. And it would be a kind of announcing to everybody like tragedy is here. Professional grievers, mourning, lamenting. Maybe you think your kids could be that, professional wailers. But that's kind of what he walked into. And so it immediately turns laughing, scorning. And it's kind of like Jesus is too late. The, the, the time has, has passed. I don't know if he could have helped anyways, but he definitely can't help now. And Mark leads us to think that. But Jairus now, who has to be at his lowest devastated moment, verse 36, they just say, daughter is dead. Why trouble this teacher? But overhearing them, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, but have faith. He said the same thing to the disciples in the boat. Why are you so faith fearful? Why do you have so little faith? Do not fear, only believe. I realize how simple that answer is and how difficult it is to receive it when you're in the midst of difficult, tragic, hard circumstances. But Jesus has been demonstrating and offering the kingdom. He's been showing his healing, resurrecting, life-giving power. He says, do not fear, only believe. Jesus has power over the storm, over the realm of darkness, over disease, over death. And this is what we need to preach to ourselves again and again. When we're in the midst of the difficulty of the storm, do not fear, only believe. Remember, we've just been told to rehearse and remember all that the Lord has done for us and how merciful he has been. Once we hit a difficulty, we don't just forget all that. We remember he has been incredibly merciful to us. You know, Jesus doesn't try to make an explanation, try doesn't, doesn't try to make it all make sense or them to feel better in this moment. I get this is incredibly difficult, but if you believe that God is good, if you believe that God is sovereign, if you believe that he is working for your good, if you believe that ultimate victory is his, then do not fear, only believe. That's the sermon, that's the diagnosis. Jesus is going to instruct his faith, our faith, further. As you continue down, we'll just pick up in verse 37. It says, And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So you have Jairus and then this inner circle. Remember that Mark relied heavily on Peter to give his gospel account. So what you're having here before you, Peter was present for this. That's why he remembers certain details of it that we have for us. Verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing, those professional mourners. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now we know there that Jesus isn't correcting them, that really the child just took a nap and everyone's confused. 
What he's doing is he's setting himself up that when it comes to Christ and his power, death has no hold on anyone more than a simple nap does. He's proclaiming his power and authority. Verse 40, they laughed at him. It says, but he put them all outside. <laughs> Get out of here. All the haters outside. Put them all outside. And he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him. And he went in where the child was. Once again, a touch. It's interesting. We've seen story after story of things that are unclean, that cannot be touched. Because they're unclean and whoever touches them becomes unclean. Once again, Jesus comes in, and it's not the uncleanness that is contagious, it's Christ's holiness, it's Christ's grace. When he touches what is unclean, it becomes clean. He touches, it says, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. It's an intimate, affectionate term here. It would be like if you go in to your sweet little child as she's sleeping rubber bags say come on sweetheart get up it's that sort of affection little girl sweetheart but when he says arise it's not just simply wake up mark's going to use this word again later on when he talks about the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead sweetheart be resurrected the the, the compassion the care kindness. Verse 42, and immediately the girl got up and began walking. She was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. As Jesus often does, he strictly charged them that no one should know this. He told them, give her something to eat. The resurrection of this little girl shows us Christ's power and authority over the final enemy, death. A couple of things to take away from it. First, Jesus' timing is perfect, and it's not your timing. He's not too late. We can't turn and say, there's no need for him now, it's too late. We don't need to bother the master anymore. There's a girl who enjoyed her life for 12 years, and then there's this emergency. And Jesus delays in getting there. Here's a woman who's been suffering and trying everything to get better, and she's been suffering for 12 years. Why delay that long? And yet the point of it is he takes their little kernel of faith, however misinformed, however superstitious, whatever that looks like, and he deepens it and he informs it and it begins to flourish and it does so because of his timing, because of the way he works in their lives. God's timing is perfect. I get it doesn't make it easier when you're going through difficulty, but it's still the truth. Do not fear, only believe. His timing is perfect. He moved in the way he did in your life for a reason. And it's so that your faith might endure to the end and might flourish and that Jesus Christ might be praised. Again, he's not trying to let you know and make sense of it right now for you that you would know exactly why his timing worked like it did. But he's saying his timing is perfect for this lady, for Jairus, for this little girl.
This time is perfect because you see the compassion, the affection that he, he comes to them with. Daughter, little one, sweetheart, and touches them. These accounts are so that you know that in Christ, the age to come has invaded the age that is passing away. The reality is that it is here in Christ. The reality is that it's offered to you. The reality is that by faith he's inviting you into it. So you see these kind of highlighted demonstrations of the demon being cast out, of these healings of one being raised from the dead. You think, okay, that's all great. But the little one I want raised from the dead isn't being raised from the dead. The person I knew who was sick was sick and they died from it. That person who goes on and on. Like, how is this helping me? Again, remember, as Jesus describes the kingdom, he, he describes it as this process by which the hearing of the word produces faith. And faith begins as something little, and it flourishes and grows. And so the seed is planted. It is here, do not fear, only believe. But the harvest has not yet come. The harvest has not yet come. We, we see that in those initial parables, and then we see it again with the demoniac. Remember as he took the demons, instead of just you know, vanquishing them from ever being around again, he, he lets them go into the herd of pigs, and they still cause destruction and chaos. And it's this picture of the kingdom invading, of God's power over the domain of darkness and over death, and yet this age is passing away, and the sin and the hurt that exists still here and still a reality and still present with us. And so as we come to these, we realize, do not fear, only believe. It's the same Jesus is in control. That Jesus is going to lay down his life. That, that if he has stopped the storm, he has stopped the wave of God's wrath against you, certainly he can calm the storm in the ocean. If he faced death and he has risen, then he has every right to touch this little girl and say, sweetheart, be resurrected. As he looks at this woman, he can say, my wounds will make you whole. You'll be healed by my stripes. And we live in this age where the truth has gone out. We must hear the word. We must believe it. Even though often right now, the reality of it is still a ways off. So that perhaps your little one that you want to see arise doesn't get to arise to your arms, but Jesus says, little one, arise to my arms. I have risen, and you will be with me. And maybe that healing doesn't end after 12 years, but it says, come unto me, and you will be made whole. Those realities are completely true. Because Jesus demonstrated it, then he went to the cross, and then he defeated it on the cross. It gives you an anchor of hope for the future. And hopefully it increases and grows your faith in the present. And even if it isn't all making sense yet, even if the request is not being answered the way that we want it to, we know he is working to bloom our faith, to preserve us to the end. And we know that the end is secured because he has welcomed the little one to his chest. That one's enjoying the presence of God. The one that might not find healing in this age finds it completely in the age to come.
So we remember that reality. The kingdom is here. That's our message. That's our mission. We are welcomed into it. And yet we await with firm hope the kingdom to come. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you.